Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Please turn to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 6. Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, and I'm going to read from verses 1 to 30. Uh, I owe a lot of my help this evening, not to a commentary, as is often the case, but to a friend. Uh, Many of you know Rupert Hunt Taylor, the minister of Edinburgh North. We have several friends there, and Rupert helped me immensely with this passage. Sometimes it's uh, listening to somebody else, a friend who you trust, who sees things you haven't seen uh, and the best, of, the best of what I'll give you tonight is uh, Rupert's help in understanding this. You'll see the title, Twelve Heads on a Platter. And so as we read, see if you can work out what that means as we look at this together. Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But 
An opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples, John's disciples, heard of this, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The twelve apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. Amen. May God bless to us his holy word. Mark's gospel chapter 6 is where we are this evening. But Mark's Gospel chapters 4 and 5 contain, I think, some of the most beautiful stories in the whole Bible. I spoke on Mark chapter 5 at Aberdeen University Christian Union several years ago. Uh, I was looking at those verses just this week, and I remember preaching that evening at the CU. I don't know if the students that night could see me fighting back the tears uh, as we read Mark's Gospel chapter 5 together. Jairus and his daughter raising the Lord Jesus, raising her from death. A few years ago, my brother and his wife buried their little daughter, Layla. And she's buried in Cambridge in England. My brother and his wife and their children, three children live in Philadelphia. One family and death has run its cold hand right through their home. Mark chapter 5, a girl A daughter is raised to life by Jesus' gentle voice. It is so beautiful. Do you know William Gadsby's magnificent hymn? We sang it uh, just a few weeks ago. It's one of my favorite hymns. If you don't know already, I'm having it at my funeral. Immortal honors rest on Jesus' head. Some of the most beautiful words, I think, ever penned. I challenge you to find a richer opening line of a hymn. Immortal honors rest on Jesus' head. My God, my portion, and my living bread, in him I live. Upon him cast my care. He saves from death, destruction, and despair. Not one thing, not two things, but three things, from death, destruction, and despair. And all of those things, those three Three Ds, death, destruction, and despair. They're all there in what Will and Alex have been showing us these past Sunday evenings. Jesus crosses every boundary you can imagine. There are storms at sea. He crosses the the boundary between order and chaos. The demon-possessed man in chapter 5 in the land of the Gerasenes. The woman who is bleeding. 
He crosses the boundaries between clean and unclean. Jairus' daughter, the boundary between life and death is nothing to Jesus. He just, he just crashes through that boundary to bring her back. Oh, friends, there are places we will not go and people we will not touch and situations we will not enter for fear of what those people in those places will do to us. And Jesus enters them. And he stands there, doesn't he, in Mark chapter 4 and 5, in, in the midst of the carnage and the smell and the mess. And he is unstained by any of it. He is undaunted. And he is taking what sin has soiled and broken. And look, he is reclaiming inch by inch by inch what sin has spoiled in the world. Mark has set us up at the end of chapter 5. If you read it all the way through, he has set us up for surely the great homecoming. Surely there's going to be a coronation now. He has conquered death, destruction, despair. You cannot get any more amazing than the end of chapter 5. Surely now he's going to go viral. He's going to go global. Chapter 6, verse 1, he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Verse 3, and they took offense at him. They took offense at him. This Jesus, the Jesus of chapters 4 and 5, Friends, have you ever wondered why some people don't believe? Have you ever wondered why some people cannot see who Jesus is? Why do some believe and some do not? Have you ever wondered that? Of course you have. Mark chapter 6 is about to show us an, an answer. Not, not, not every answer, but an answer to that question. Why some believe and some do not. Here we are again this evening with Sunday evening sandwiches. That's what we're eating, isn't it? Week by week here in Mark's gospel. We're, we're getting used to the way that Mark writes, which is to give us something, a big meaty middle bit. But before that, we've got an introductory idea. And then we get the same idea again after the big meaty bit. So th there's two things in Mark. He often has a sandwich. Have a look at this, he says, then see this, and then come back to that idea again at the start. What, what's the sandwich here? Mark chapter 6, verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went among the villages teaching, and he called the twelve and sent them out to teach, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Jesus is sending out the twelve to teach and to proclaim. What, what, what is he sending them out to teach? Verse 12, to, to repent, to proclaim that people should repent. That is what Jesus is doing in chapter 6, verse 2. That is his message. Repent, turn your life around, come, come back to God, climb down off the throne of your own life, acknowledge that Jesus is the king of the world. You, Lord, are king, not me. That's what repentance is. Just look back at Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Now, after John was arrested and Jesus came into Galilee, teaching, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent 
and believe in the gospel. You notice verse 14, after John was arrested, Jesus came preaching. That message, repent, that is what John the Baptist was preaching. See it in chapter 1, verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance was John's message. Repentance is Jesus' message. Here are the 12, Mark chapter 6, verse 12, sent out with the same message, the same message as John. Okay, there's the first bit of the sandwich. Mark chapter 6, the 12. Now look down at verse 30. The apostles returned. The 12 came back to Jesus and told him about all that they had been teaching. Okay, there's the end of the sandwich, the bottom bit. But what do you get in the middle? Verses 14 to 29, the heading in your Bible, as in mine, the death of John the Baptist. We get, friends, the fate of those who preach this message. Verses 14 to 29, we get a slowed down, close up look at two people responding to that message. And so, friends, this evening, I want to give you the message of the sandwich. Here's the message of this whole, whole passage, the message of the sandwich in one sentence, and it's this. Speaking Jesus' message will earn you Jesus' fate. Speaking Jesus' message will earn you Jesus' fate. That's why we need to take all of these verses together, chapter 6, right down to verse 30. Mark wants us to see that people will find all sorts of reasons to reject Jesus and his message. See that in verse 4? Him? Him? The local lad? The Messiah? No, that, that can't be right. He's just the joiner from up the road telling me to repent. No, let me tell you, I'll take it from a priest. I'll take it from somebody wearing the right clothes in the synagogue, but not from him. We know who he is. And Jesus marvels. He, he is amazed. Look, I've preached to you. He says, I've spoken to you about God's kingdom. I've confirmed the message to you with signs and wonders and miracles. And still you will not see it. You won't hear me. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And what does he do? He leaves them. He went about the villages teaching. It's why, it's why he tells the 12 here to take no bread, take no bag, take no money, travel light, because they need to know that if people reject their preaching, they should just move on to the next location. See, a sign of people hearing you and receiving you is that they will fund you. And they will feed you. They'll look after you, but if they don't, don't stay, Jesus says. Just shake the dust off your feet and move on. You need to be ready for constant rejection, Jesus is saying. If people reject you, in turn move on to others who might hear you. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came immediately and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depths of soil. But when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. 
Mark chapter 4. Those are the words of the Lord Jesus himself saying to you and I what is happening right here and now this evening, what happens in Trinity every Sunday morning and evening. It's what we told the kids, wasn't it, in church just a few Sundays ago. I said to them that every single week Jesus is giving you something. And he's giving it to you, friends, this evening, right here and now, his word. He's speaking to us. And every single time something is happening when Jesus speaks, Jesus is speaking to people who listen and to people who half listen. I've always wondered what does it actually look like to be seed that falls on the path, hard ground, What does it look like to be the kind of person that Jesus' words just bounce off like knife off a Kevlar vest? No way in. What does it look like? Mark 6 is going to show us this evening. Here is an example. I've always wondered what does it look like to be the kind of person on the rocky soil who listens to Jesus and thinks this is amazing, but because there is no depth, the growth is really quick. There's an immediate reaction, but it is gone in the morning at the first sign of any heat. It withers away. And Mark chapter 6 puts a name on that kind of soil. The name is Herod. Here is what it looks like, friends, to be those kind of listeners. And friends, here's the lesson for us this evening. Here, I hope this is a help to us as we look at ourselves and our friends and our family. The reason why some people do not believe in Jesus, their heads, is because they won't repent their hearts. It's what, it's what we love that drives what we believe. And it's not the other way around. It's what we love that dictates what we believe. What we do with our bodies and our hands and our money and our eyes and the things that our heart loves. That is what drives what we do with Jesus. Repent is a very hard word to say to someone. And it is an even harder thing for many to do. See, if you look at John the Baptist, look at him with me. Chapter 6, verse 17. Doesn't chapter 6, verse 17, it picks up immediately from chapter 1, verse 15. You you could follow on chapter 6, verse 17 from Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Look at it. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. You could go straight to chapter 6, verse 17, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John. Here's the explanation now. And bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Six chapters we've had to wait for any explanation of why John was in prison. And now here it is. For John had been saying to Herod, verse 18, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Our friends, repent, repent is a very hard word to say to someone. What do you think it felt like for John to say, verse 18? Listen to J.C. Ryle my favorite bishop. Here we see how boldly a faithful minister of God ought to rebuke sin. 
John the Baptist spoke plainly to Herod about the wickedness of his life. He did not excuse himself under the plea that it was imprudent or unpolite or untimely or useless to speak out. No, he did not say smooth things and palliate the king's ungodliness by using soft words to describe his offense. He told his royal hearer the plain truth, regardless of all the consequences. It is not lawful. Here is a pattern that all ministers ought to follow. Publicly and privately from the pulpit and in private visits, they ought to rebuke all open sin and deliver a faithful warning to all who are living in it. It may give offense. It may entail immense unpopularity. With all this, they have nothing to do. The duty is theirs. The results are God's. It's hard, isn't it? Could you do verse 18? Could you do what John does? Repent, friends, is a very hard thing to say. How hard to do this in the public sphere. Do you remember Tim Farron, the leader of the the Liberal Democrats, the Christian politician? Remember when he was leader, he was trapped, really, wasn't he? Ensnared by a a skillful journalist about his views of same-sex relationships as a Christian. And eventually he agreed to give the interview. But is it sinful, he was asked, unexpectedly, is it sinful? And you may have seen that awful, painful interview under the lights. We watched a good man come apart, didn't we? Something he has since said that he regrets so very profoundly. To, to, to say something that God says is wrong to people who are doing the thing that is wrong is very, very hard. Brothers and sisters, pray for your preachers, please. Your elders. We all speak Jesus' message, don't we? We all do. But some of us speak it often, publicly. Week in, week out, and to be able to preach to all without fear or favor is a very precious thing. And it requires the kind of courage only God can give. We need it, don't we? We all fear men. So important to be able to speak the truth. Some of you will have seen, uh, to, to many of you it may not have meant much, some of you will have seen really quite big news that a man called Bishop Michael Nazarali, a, a bishop in the Church of England, in the past weeks has converted to Roman Catholicism. And Michael Nazarali has been a tremendous voice for good over the years in many different ways, many contexts from born in Pakistan, uh, an excellent theologian, knows the religion of in, Islam inside out, has helped the church think clearly, winsomely about uh, other religions. And I read an interview this week uh, with Nazarali, why did you convert to the Roman Catholic Church? You know what he said? Because the Church of England I was raised in no longer stands for anything. Doesn't believe anything anymore. People come and go, they're blown here, there, and everywhere with every wind of doctrine and teaching. If you shout loud enough, you gain the platform. He simply wants a place that says, This is what we say is true. I think of the doctors in our midst. I pray for you often. And teachers, 
What is the message of repentance because Jesus is king going to cost you in the years to come? I think it will cost you a lot. What about those of you who are academics studying? I remember hearing Kevin DeYoung say years ago to PhD students, I thought this was excellent. He said, look, while you were doing your PhD, you're a Christian uh, academic. While you were doing your PhD, you kept your head down. You thought, you know what? I'm just going to keep a low profile in these years of study until I'm qualified, until I've got my seat at the table. I don't want to say or do anything that will harm my prospects. I'll get in the door. And he said, well, it's been 20 years now and you've been sitting at that table and you still haven't said anything. It's because it's hard, isn't it? Very hard. Somebody said this, we behold in John an illustration of that moral courage which all godly teachers ought to possess, not to hesitate to incur the wrath of the great and the powerful. Oh, repentance is a hard thing to say. And friends, I think sometimes it is even harder to do. It's harder to do. Do you know why Herod doesn't believe? Because he won't repent. Look at the way Mark presents Herod. Look at the story. This, this is not a man who is totally hardened to the gospel, is it? No, he is a weak man held captive by his desires. Really, he's all over the place, isn't he? Look at verse 19. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John. He's kind of trapped with John, isn't he? Knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Just look at the wording of that. It is amazing, isn't it? Herod is the one with all the power. He's the one with the keys to the prison cell. But look at it. He feared John. He's scared of him. Why is a man like Herod scared of a man like John? Here's what one commentator says. Because goodness is awful. Goodness is awful. Goodness is terrifying to evil. Somebody has said the truth will set you free, but first it will make you miserable. The truth will set you free, but first it will make you miserable. That's what so many people actually experience, isn't it? On the way of coming to Christ, they see something different in the Christian people around them. They see something different in you and they feel they feel judged by you, even though you haven't said anything to them. They, they can't put it into words. They don't know why there's something about you that irritates them. But then they listen and speak to you and get to know you. And the thing that they can't explain slowly over time, they're drawn by it. They enter a kind of gracious discomfort that leads them to Christ. The truth will set you free. It rarely happens like that for people. It is gradual. It is a process. They, they feel the light of the gospel shining on the dark corners of their lives, and eventually they come to him on bended knee. But they come like that because if repentance is a hard thing to say, repentance itself is a hard thing to do. Friends, some people are like this. They're perplexed by the message, but interested. You, Yes, I'll hear this gladly, you Christians. You're kind of different. I can't tell if you're weird or wonderful. 
And maybe that's you this evening in a room like this. Maybe you have friends like this. I want to encourage you, friends, be patient. Be persistent in speaking the message. Let your life do its own work in people, whatever their reaction to you. And at the same time, friends, this evening, if you've been scratching your head at the Lord Jesus this evening for many months or many years and wondering, I need to say to you from this passage, be warned. The opportunity may not always be there. It is possible to dally and dither and delay for so long that deciding between opinions before you know it, something else will come along and sweep you along and your interest in Jesus will be gone and with catastrophic consequences. See, in verse 20, Herod Herod has a stirred conscience, doesn't he? I think in verse 20 that the the seed is dropping into the rocky soil. It is, it is springing up, isn't it? It's coming up, coming up from the surface. He's listening. He hear, hears it gladly, but now look at verse 26. He has a violated conscience. The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. He goes against his own perception to to save his own face, and it is his downfall. You know, I think I can say this in my experience in pastoral ministry. I think I can say that it is a relationship choice more than anything else that leads people, the, the, the most common reason I've seen that leads people to walk away from Christ in the end is a relationship choice. Somebody matters more than him. There is a real danger, friends, in letting yourself, like Herod, listen to Jesus, but postponing the decisions you know you need to make. I'll decide soon. I'll I'll, I'll decide tomorrow. Sometimes you can end up finding yourself caught in a web of your own making, and there is almost no way out of it like Herod. What one commentator said, it is not really his lust that leads Herod to kill John. It is his weakness, his inability to lose face. He didn't care about this girl, did he? He would have broken his oath to her in an instant, but he'd made an oath in front of the people whose opinions he did value. Probably a drunken dare. And in a moment, his entire career and respectability hangs in the balance. And in an instant, Repentance becomes almost impossible to do. Oh, it is a hard thing to do. Herod is the rocky soil, isn't he? That, that's the kind of listener. He, he's listening, saying, wow, this is amazing. But there is no depth. And the moment there is a bit of heat, he withers and dies. Herodias the woman he's married to, well, she's the path, isn't she? She's the hard ground. She's got a Kevlar-plated heart. She's not interested from the start. She just bears a grudge against this man, wants rid of him. Who are you going to be, Mark is asking? What sort of listener are we going to be? Are we going to be the kind of listeners to Jesus' word and to his messengers, the kind of listeners who who just simply say every single time Jesus speaks, you are king and I am not. 
yes, Lord, it is not lawful for me to do such and such. I will stop, turn my life around. I am in the wrong. You are in the right. Do you remember the story Jesus tells, Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son? What does Jesus, how does Jesus describe repentance? He, he has the son, but when he came to himself, that, that, that's the picture of repentance, isn't it? The son who's gone off into the far country, he's, he's blown it, he's ruined everything. But when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, that's what repentance is. When we sin and we go our own way, we, we take leave of our senses, don't we? Sin is always foolishness. It's always irrational. It seems so right, so beautiful. And repentance is that moment where we take seriously the, the fact that actually it tastes wrong. We want to put it right. That is all I long for for Trinity. Do you know that, friends? Uh, someone said to me recently, what, what do you hope will happen moving into that building? What do you hope Trinity will be like? Moving into that building, simple answer, repentant people, repentant husbands, repentant wives, repentant children. And brothers and sisters, I need to say this, that for those of us who listen well, for the type of soil that Jesus says is good soil in his world, world that the type of soil that is going to bear a harvest in his world, Jesus says the the harvest comes on the other side of suffering. The other side of suffering. For, for yes, Marcus put this together to show us not to be like his hometown, not to be like the villages that reject his messengers, not to be like Herod, not to be like Herodias. Yes, Mark is saying, don't be like all of them. But here is what you need to know. That if you are like John instead... And like the Lord Jesus and like the twelve, what does he want his apostles to know? That there will be twelve heads on a platter. Speaking Jesus' message will earn you Jesus' fate. Mark chapter 6 has a shape, doesn't it? It is it is the shape of a cross that is falling back from chapter 14, falling all the way back across these verses. Verse 17, it was Herod who sent and seized John, the exact same word that's going to be used in just a few chapters about what happens to Jesus. He is seized. And look at that verse 29, when his disciples heard it, they came took his body and laid it in a tomb. It is so ominous, isn't it? The shadow of a cross is looming. Brothers and sisters, speaking Jesus' message will earn you Jesus' fate. Let me close with J.C. Ryle again. Listen to these words. Stories like these, speaking about John the Baptist and Herod, Stories like these are meant to remind us that the true Christian's best things are yet to come. His rest, his crown, his wages, his reward are all on the other side of the grave. Here in this world, he must walk by faith and not by sight. And if he looks for the praise of man, he will be disappointed. 
No, here in this life he must sow and labor and fight and endure persecution. And if he expects a great earthly reward, he expects what he will not find. But this life is not all. There is to be a day of retribution. There is a glorious harvest yet to come. And heaven will make amends for all. Amen.